Hey, this is Rob Zombie, writer and director of the film you are about to watch, which is Halloween 2. Let's get it started here with, uh, here's a little piece of uh, business at the beginning that sort of explains Michael's visions of the white horse. And uh, I noticed many times when I was in a theater, most people didn't bother to read that, so they were immediately confused as soon as the movie started. Here's a shot I stole from the first Halloween. Um, on the one day we had snow that we never used. We went back in color time and took out the green trees and replaced the sky and got a nice free uh, exterior of a Smith's Grove Sanitarium. Here's our new young Michael Myers, Chase Vanek, and Sherry Moon Zombie as uh, Deborah Myers' mom. And here's the white horse toy that later just is significant in his memory. It doesn't cause him to kill or anything like that, but it's just a significant moment. And this set we built... Um, spontaneously this whole scene was spontaneous in fact the whole white horse thing was just something I thought of one day when we were shooting I saw a white horse running in the field in the morning when I was driving to set and it just looked so surreal that I came up with this white horse idea and this room that they're in is actually a pool house that was behind the house we use for the bracket house that you'll later see and our art department um, who are just amazing overnight transformed it into this uh, sanitarium room with you know, no notice and no money. I want to see. Okay? Here up. All right. Okay, no more gloom. Okay. Okay. And there's some audio from the end of our first film for those who forgot that Lori shot Michael dead. Here's the town square, which was, I can't remember if this was Covington, Georgia or not, but somewhere down in Georgia where it basically rained every single day, so all the rain in the movie are not rain towers, it's actually just the rain that was constantly falling. And uh, what was great about shooting down here was we didn't have any police or anyone to lock off the streets, we just shot because there were no people around anyway. The streets were so deserted at night that we could literally walk our actress down the middle of the street without fear of her being hit by a car. And the only time I thought she'd be hit by a car was uh, when Brad Dourif pulls up behind her here in the police car. Of course, his scout, Taylor Compton, is Lori Strode, stumbling down the street. And um, she is uh, quite a trooper here because it was freezing cold and she was soaking wet all night long. And if you could see the camera crew behind the camera, they're all bundled up in giant parkas in front of space heaters and things. And she's out there wearing nothing frozen solid. And uh, even, you know, so she's a, she never gave up. This uh, here is uh, the one scene that really connects to the, the end of the last film, where we last saw her shoot Michael, and I just thought we needed one brief moment that connected it. We couldn't find the wardrobe or, or any of this, so we quickly had to piece together something that uh, was matched the last movie, and a couple people have pointed out that the pattern on her, pattern on her shirt there is wrong, but uh, whatever. If you're looking at the pattern on her shirt, you get problems. This was actually the first day of filming. One of the first scenes we shot, and we knew it was going to be a, a long movie because it just started off horrible and went downhill. Um, we had a million problems on this day. We started the first day of shooting way behind schedule because uh, we had decided to use local sound and, and video, and they just weren't prepared for how fast and furious we were going to move, so they could... They were having a panic attack 24-7, so they, they were, you know, we shot a lot of this MOS because they could never get the sound working, and we had to go in and dub it later because we moved really fast, and if people can't keep up, they tend to panic. 
Here is uh, Malcolm McDowell obviously being shoved in the ambulance, and that was a different Myers house than the one from the first movie, because obviously the first movie was shot in uh, South Pasadena. And we actually took another house there and rebuilt the facade of it to look as similar as possible, but the houses in that area obviously didn't look like it. What the hell happened to this kid, anyway? I don't know. I thought it was car accident. I'm very confused. Uh, at least neurosurgery cleared her head. We don't have to do anything with that. Right. Here's some uh, pretty intense uh, special effects work by Wayne Toth on Laurie's uh, broken fingers and whatnot. The other guy scrubbing up there was an actual doctor who... Uh, was just there to advise and somehow he worked himself into the scene and basically had most of the dialogue too. I don't know how that happened, but he was really good and he advised us on everything. We wanted everything to be completely real. And, you know, at all times we were following exact procedure as it would, he said it would be. We would ask him questions about, you know, which wounds would they attend to first? Would they clean her up? Would they do this or that? And, you know, we did it by the book and all the other, there's the one doctor the female doctor caroline williams who people might remember from texas chainsaw massacre too she's really the only actor in there all the emts and the nurses and the doctors are all real people same with this you know there's a couple uh actors in there the the girl in the scene here with the ponytail lifting michael myers into the van is actually uh tyler main who plays michael myers that's his wife so she was hanging around that day so she jumped in the uniform and again, more disgusting surgery. And uh, Dayton Kelly, who uh, a lot of people might remember from Deadwood, and Richard Brake uh, as the two, uh, you know, coroner guys here. This was all done pretty fast and furious that night. We always had, uh, you know, we had to shoot anywhere from nine to twelve pages a day because as we were shooting, our schedule kept getting chopped off. I'd say that there's nothing obvious about anything that happened here tonight. Not a goddamn thing. We had one day of aerial <laughs> photography, and this obviously is one of the scenes. Son of a bitch was heavy, huh? Six guys to lift one stiff. That's one for the books. These were some scenes. This is a scene here that we had our disastrous day where someone x-rayed our film at the airport. And obviously it took place on the worst possible day. It was a long, long, miserable day of shooting that we couldn't wait to end. And then the next day we found out all the film was no good. This scene here was one of the scenes that had to be redone. And unfortunately, Richard Brake lives in London, so he had to fly all the way back from London, you know, London to do this. And it was a, it was a bit of a fiasco, but he came back and he uh, was incredibly jet lagged, but he nailed it as usual. He was great. But, uh, you know, it's very... Uh, very disheartening to everyone involved when you find out that 18 to 20 hours worth of miserable work was for nothing, you know, to, to go back and have to redo it. It's just, you, you want to kill yourself. And part of the redo is coming up here, which is uh, the cow that they're about to hit. That was a real comedy of errors nonstop. Uh, they had rigged a cow that it was like something out of Monty Python. They'd rigged a cow that the van was supposed to hit, and they were like, oh, don't worry, you know, don't worry. This van's going to crush like a walnut when it hits this thing. And it hit the cow and sent the cow flying through the air like it was made out of paper mache. It didn't do anything. 
and they rigged it again, wasting our whole night, and it didn't work. And then finally, on the third try, a week later, um, a different effects team came in, and they nailed it in one try. But that was another fiasco. Here's some more uh, great effects work by Wayne Toth. And um, this scene we squeaked out as fast as possible because, as usual, it was starting to rain. You know, we had a lot of trouble with the there were brief moments when it wasn't raining, so we'd start shooting, and then you would see the drops coming down. And if you look close in some scenes, it's raining, then not raining, then it's raining. Then we just didn't know what to do. We were carrying rain towers with us at all times to try to, like, match, but it was the weather was so insanely unpredictable. But all this here was part of the reshoot when we realized our film was damaged and we had to go back. And unfortunately, we didn't really get any extra time to redo. We just had to redo it and pack it back onto our already completely undoable schedule. But we got it done. You know, luckily, uh, cast and crew were, uh, were amazing, and they, wouldn't, they never complained, at least you know, not to me anyway. And uh, coming up here is really our first reappearance of Michael. And a lot of people seem confused sometimes where the, the reality ends and the dreams begin, but this is all still the reality part of the movie. The dream begins once Lori wakes up in the hospital, so that's coming up. So this is still, you know, I didn't explain it. Clearly Michael got shot in the head in the first movie, but how the hell are you going to explain something like that? You just kind of let it go. And uh, we'll just say uh, Lori's a bad shot and it, he was grazed or whatever. Really, what are you going to do? This was a, uh, and I've heard, I've read some other funny things where people have said, um, oh, it's a ridiculous that they hit a cow. But this whole cow thing was based on a true story that happened to a friend of mine where him and his friends were out driving on this road with their headlights off. It was pitch dark and there was just suddenly they turned the headlights on and there was a cow standing in the middle of the road and they only had time to scream the word cow as these guys did. And then they smacked into a cow and it crushed their car. So it can happen. Cow can jump out at any moment at you. We filmed these little inserts here of the neck cutting much, much later. We were very far into the editing process, almost done. Actually, we were about a week from release, and we went back and filmed those those little inserts. Um, it almost seemed like we never actually stopped filming the movie. It was actually very, very bizarre. This is a nice severed head. And now Michael looks off here and sees the first vision of his mother and the memory of the white horse. This is still reality, but it's only in Michael's mind, obviously. It's, nobody can see these things but him. That's why I thought it would be interesting to s get a glimpse into the way Michael perceives the world. I believe this was also part of our damaged... Yeah, this was damaged film, too, that we had to redo. Which was uh, really a drag, because you know that's a gigantic horse, and it was... You know, it's a little tricky to deal with, but that night it was being super mellow. It look, almost looks fake standing there. And by that point, Sherry was pretty used to the horse. First, she was a little scared. Now, this begins our dream sequence. With uh, Laurie waking up in the hospital and the uh, endless loop of Moody Blues playing Knights in White Satin. Um, once fake rain. That's actually fake rain for once. We actually made some fake rain. This was, at a, this was an abandoned hospital we found... And it was pretty disgusting, and we had to fix it all up. 
all the local people there, some, a local actress playing the nurse there, sleeping, I don't, I don't remember her name. You know, this, this was uh, within the first couple days of shooting also, I believe. Just a lot of hospital work, you know. I think we were in the hospital for about three days. And Octavia Spencer as the nurse in Caroline. We just kind of, I don't think any of this was in the script. We just, they kind of got together and they're easy to work. Whenever actors are easy to work with, then you can kind of improvise these little scenes. We would go off and improvise and we'd sort of nail it down and then basically pick a section and they would rehearse that. And the, the funny thing is the conversation that, that Octavia is about to have on the telephone is that we'll get to in a minute, is a conversation I overheard five minutes before we shot it. That is uh, Daniel Harris, obviously, is Annie Brackett in the hospital here. I believe when we shot it, I had her play it as if she opens her eyes and looks at her, but then I decided to keep it that she's out. And there was a little conversation back and forth. I mean, Danielle didn't talk, but there was a little mention of their friend Linda, who had been killed and whatnot, but then I thought, well... Oh. Might be confusing to people, so I didn't even reference it. And by this point, we had we had messed up uh, Scout pretty good with the bruises and uh, the stitches. And there was really good stitch work under those pads, which... I'm not sure why we went to all that trouble since we never took off those pads. It was kind of a big waste. And there's our editor, Glenn Garland, playing the... Uh, the voiceover of the, uh, the the guy in the intercom. So um, I think the conversation may have already went by. I don't know. I'm just moving a while. It's getting confusing. Anyway, so she turns around, and we're still in the dream. Coming up on Michael's first appearance. I need something for my head. We tried to make this as interesting as possible because shooting in a hospital can get pretty boring because it all every hallway and every turn is i mean it's made to look the same so we just kept decorating this one area and changing things out we, we didn't run all over the whole hospital because most of it was in such a, a wreck this uh scene coming up here is something i improvised in the night we actually had a stunt woman who was going to double octavia mike was going to attack and she was going to get thrown through the glass and it was going to be this whole big scene but as I always tend to do, I seem to always eliminate the stunts because they start looking very stunty and you can't really show the actor's face. So then I just decided to go with something simple like this. And the slit face appliance was something that was left over from another scene where Michael was going to encounter these cops at the uh, Myers house later. And we had done this appliance for him to cut one of the cops' faces. Uh, it was a female cop. But um, with the days that got cut, that was one of the scenes I did have to sacrifice because there was just no time to get to it. So luckily we had uh, um, this leftover appliance that wasn't molded to Octavia's face, but it, it fit pretty good. And Wayne, Wayne is always pretty can-do about making things work, and he did. Here's some more um, inserts that we shot later. We always had the stabbing, and I always wanted Michael to be completely ballistic when he stabbed here. And, um, and he was. And it, we only had this, but then we decided to go back and get some ins the inserts on her face hitting the floor, and the knife going in was shot way, way, way after the fact, and just a tiny, tiny little room. 
out, uh, actually out on a ranch where we shot the Devil's Rejects. There was this boiling hot little room. We went in there and just shot all these inserts. This was another thing just made up on the day. This is the first nurse that was sleeping in the room when uh, Lori Strode wakes up. And um, I don't know, Wayne had made these ripped out eye appliances for something. I don't even remember what. They weren't meant for this, but, you know, decided to use them here. And Moody Blue's still playing, obviously. Same thing that, since he was, she wasn't supposed to be stabbed in the head, she was supposed to be thrown through the glass, we had rigged all that. We didn't even have a knife that would work, so but quickly they went and sawed a knife in half and sewed it into her hair and made that work. We really only had one good staircase, so she's basically falling down the same staircase over and over and over, and we're changing out the signs. We doubled all this with a stunt girl, but Scout always seemed to take it as a challenge to outfall the stunt girl, so no matter how hard the stunt girl would throw herself down the stairs, Scout would then go and throw herself harder down the stairs. So we never actually doubled her in the movie at this point. I think we did at some other point, but not yet. It was always her falling down the stairs. This is in the basement of the hospital, leading up to a scene that was uh, cut from the theatrical. That was a, a minor thing that we created the morning of. I saw this area here that I called the pit, and we opened up the floor, and quickly, that morning, I remember rolling in and asking my first idea, can we get 25 extras down here in hospital garb and throw them in this pit that Lori comes upon to just play upon the fact that Michael has killed everyone in the hospital and sort of taken them down in the basement and shoved them in this, this pit. And, uh, you know, it was, again, just one of those spur-of-the-moment things I created. And I uh, eventually cut it because uh, couldn't really quite figure out how to make it fit in our, our quickie uh, editing schedule. But later, when we came back to it, it, it made sense and we, we included it in the uh, director's cut. And it just was a, you know, we, we just had 20 actors. She fell on top, she crawls out and then heads out down to the, the, where the axe is. And there's a brief moment here where she stops and tries to get the axe that later Michael will uh, smash and, and grab. That was a little bit of business, just to show where everyone had gone. And this is the true exterior of the hospital, and of course it's raining, so we had to continue the scene on in the rain. And it wasn't just rain, it was always freezing cold rain. Little axe gag. And then out into the rain here, this rain was actually created with rain towers. We had several rain towers, and we must have... I don't know how much water we wasted that night, but... It was ice cold as usual. And we filmed this all very quickly, like... Because, once again, we were shooting in the shortest nights of the year. So, we would get on set, I swear to God, we'd get on set, rehearse it once, fire up the rain, and the sun would start coming up. We would get very few takes at it, but this was, a uh, One very miserable night for Scout. Uh, one of m many miserable nights to come, obviously. We built all this. There was nothing there. It was just an empty parking lot. And we actually had an incredibly hard time finding an empty parking lot. That's the parking lot of a local high school that we'll figure into it heavily later. We built this shack. Except somewhere along the lines, this shack was supposed to be a breakaway shack. And nobody got that information somehow in the construction department. And they built this shack 
so sturdy you couldn't knock it over with a bulldozer. Except nobody told us that until we wanted to destroy it. Here's Tyler coming out. I believe he's wearing a wetsuit under his jumpsuit. And he was freezing cold, so you can only imagine how cold Scout was just wearing that thin hospital gown. I mean, she was, she was shivering. I'm surprised she, uh... Surprised we didn't kill her, actually. And Richard Reilly driving up as Buddy the Night Watchman. You know, Buddy Bear the Night Watchman, which is part of the dream. Because there's a scene in the movie where um, Laurie Strode has a, a teddy bear named Buddy. So it's sort of just a reflection of her teddy bear that, as him as a person within her dream. A minor thing that nobody ever notices. This was all done super quick. You can see the, the water getting all over the lens. We didn't have much time to do this. And I'm trying to remember what was specific about this. I think this was all, all over one night. We did it all in one night. We were going to come back and try to come back and fix it. That really wasn't meant to happen. The door just didn't shut good, so we just incorporated into the movie that the door didn't lock. Now this shack is tiny and we at all times were trying to, we had two camera guys crammed in there and two focus pullers so people were just tripping all over each other. Moody Blues on TV again and uh, it, was, it was pretty chaotic trying to, filming in the rain is miserable, always sounds like a good idea and then you do it and it's just like miserable, it goes very very slow. Okay, just please, it'll just take a second. No, no, honey, it'll just take a second. The car is yeah, you can hear it in her voice. Her, her, she was just like, her teeth were chattering through the whole thing. And we had a waiting van that was warm that she would run to as fast as she could before she, you know, froze to death. But a lot of times, you know, there'd be camera problems due to the rain, and she'd have to be, you know, we'd have to lock her in this, get ready to shoot, and she'd be just sitting there dying, waiting for us to roll camera, but... She never complained, ever. Some people complain about everything and some people complain about nothing. She was never complained. Almost to a fault. We might have killed her. She needs to complain sometimes. So here we leave her alone and we're just waiting for something to happen. Now coming up is the whole thing about the shack being breakable. We, we thought the shack had been made out of balsa wood and Michael could basically smash it to pieces with an axe. That's what, we, that's what I thought, that's what First AD thought, that's what Tyler thought, that's what everybody thought. But one of the producers neglected to tell us that he had told, taken away the budget to do that and had just had the construction people build a completely structural shack. So you can see when Tyler starts trying to break through it with the axe, he can barely break through it because it's completely rock solid. He does break through it eventually because he took it as a challenge that he was going to smash through it, but it was tough because, you know, his hands are frozen, the axe is wet, and this thing is a completely solid structure, but he ripped it apart. Smacking Buddy with a rubber axe, which we later fixed in uh, digitally because obviously it was wobbling around. We had a stunt guy, didn't use him. The only time we used the stunt guy here was just uh, in this wide shots so as to not be a, a dick and make the real actor lay there in the puddle. We had this, this stunt guy who was just laying there, dead, playing the dead body. But now you can really see, uh, and that's all real glass. Luckily, someone asked that question, and we replaced it with candy glass, but that was a very dangerous situation that had been set up here that was not trickling down to the people on set. There was uh, a lot of fishy business going on. So... 
get a little bit of Michael stocking, and the mass looked particularly good wet, so we just kept that going. More moody blues. And now we try to smash the shack, and it almost doesn't work. Coming up here, I think. We do a lot of window breaking, because we knew we could break the windows. But we would have to have them do a few hits, then we'd rip off some boards, and then someone would come in with a saw and cut away, and some hammers, because it was just hard to get through and dangerous we had we had so little candy glass or rubber glass really that we kept picking up the same bits of rubber glass and basically just throwing them at scout so it looked like debris was raining down it it comes across pretty effective when it's all cut together and you add the music but uh, at the time when we were filming it, it it looked pretty ridiculous and as you can see here coming up when he comes in the sky behind him is kind of blue because the sun was up but we didn't have a way to tent it since it was raining. Now here's her coming out of her dream. We begin the second reality portion of our movie. You know, on screen, on the TV, is a, a little scene from Night of the Living Dead when the uh, militia's out hunting uh, the zombies. Alice Cooper was nice enough to lend us the rights to use that poster in the background, and a lot of other people were very cool. In the theatrical, it plays as one year later, but it was originally conceived as two years later, so in the director's cut, I've made it two years later because it makes more sense. You know, Laurie Strode is a mess. You know, she's very different from the girl we left in the last movie. She's, you know, her parents are dead, or the people she thinks are her parents are dead, or her friends are dead. She's scarred. She's a mess. She's, you know, doing... She's hooked on her prescription drugs. And since Sheriff Brackett was really the only one, played by Brad Dourif, that knows the secret of her life, he feels so guilty that he's taken her in to live with him and his daughter, Annie. God, don't say anything to her. So Sheriff Brackett is clearly the frazzled single dad who cannot hold it together. And when I talked to Brad about how I wanted him to play it, he, he was like, ugh, trust me, I get it. He was very sympathetic about playing sort of the, the dad who was at the end of his rope and just feeling old and tired. He showed up for the first day of shooting and his hair had grown really long and he thought I wanted him to cut it, but I decided to keep it long and keep him a little scruffier as if, you know, since the events, Sheriff Brackett had just been fed up with life and he's ready to retire and, you know, he's just as damaged as everyone else. And the two girls here, you can see, you know, where the, the scars of the events they survived in the first film quite clearly on their faces. Here's a continuation of the breakfast scene where in the theatrical cut we really saw that uh, Lori and Annie appeared to have a nice relationship and in reality I filmed it as if they have a very turbulent relationship and Lori feels very much responsible for Annie's disfigurement and everything that's gone on in their relationship and they're ready to, to battle at the drop of a hat and even though Annie gives her this one day at a time type advice at first we think Lori goes for it, but then, boom, it's like the bomb explodes. And Lori goes into her, her sort of like zero to a hundred rage that she speaks about later. You know, she feels that nobody understands, even though Annie's in the same boat, and Annie's sick of... You know, Annie's sort of taken on the role of the mother in the relationship, which 
in the first film, Lori was the responsible girl and Annie was sort of the party girl. And now it's like Lori's the wild one. And Annie has, you know, it's, it's like she's the mom taking care of Lori and Sheriff Brackett. And it creates a very different dynamic between the two. It makes for a much darker, more depressing film. Which leads us to a very different therapist scene than in the theatrical. You know, she starts off talking about the dreams in a very similar fashion, but now we see that the dreams are, you know, really leading to her um, problems with Annie, of which the therapist now will ask about. I, you know, originally I filmed this very, very different ways because I wasn't sure which character threads would really run through the movie. I know Michael Myers is dead. I shot him in the fucking head. I know he's not going to come back just because of some stupid holiday. This is all the same in both cuts. But Lori's, you know, in this version, she just is more of a mess, basically, and she goes from bad to worse. She's not holding it together, clearly, on any level. So that's the reality that we have to heal you from. And here's some more new material coming up here. In recovery. So basically, I just have to wait until my brain heals. Until her brain heals. And then, you know, the therapist asks about Annie, and we start getting some insights into how Lori feels about Annie now that Annie is just a bad memory rather than her good friend. Which really becomes, a, you know, something more significant in the movie now when you have this information because you see that there's a lot of guilt on both sides and that Lori has actually pushed Annie away. The tragedy has not brought them together but pushed them apart and she's sort of gone out and got her new friends and sort of created a new Lori Strode, much like the new Dr. Loomis, where she doesn't want to be the old Lori Strode. She wants to be the new Lori Strode. And that she has uncontrollable rage. That snaps, and I get this zero to a hundred rage, and I just want to go up to her, and I just. And we start seeing the same early on here that sort of the tendencies that young Michael Myers had of just being unable to control his rage, and it just it ties them it. It ties the characters together better in a way, and you start seeing all the underlying similarities. And also, here's the first hint of the white horse, where um, the therapist this Rorschach painting on the wall, and Lori notices it, and she looks at it, and you know, it's, she says she sees a white horse, and does that mean that she's sane or crazy? And it's just the first little hint about things to come. Which once this came out of the movie later on, you know, due to our ex such incredibly accelerated post schedule, you know, sometimes you make editing decisions that ultimately you regret and that's why thank god for the director's cut you put it all back in and the movie makes sense again the natives are getting restless you were supposed to be here 45 minutes ago and now in stark contrast to the damaged lives of Lori, Annie, and Sheriff Brackett comes Dr. Loomis, who, when we last saw him, he seemed to be dead, but he's obviously survived everything quite well, and he's wearing expensive clothes with his publicist, staying at the best hotel he can find, and loving every minute of it. Even though he's scarred on the inside, he shows nothing on the outside. He's become a complete Hollywood player, sold his soul 
for money. You know, when you think back to the first movie, when we first see him, he's kind of this like hippie child psychologist who's trying to be helpful, and now he's just this sort of like jive Hollywood guy trying to sell books. Can you just level with me? Is there going to be a problem today? Ooh, you are quite an odd one, aren't you? I mean, look at you. Are you color coordinated? What pink clogs and this orange thing? What are you, are you a clam digger or something? Mary Bird's song is his publicist who came into the production at the last second. For some reason, um, the studio was super obsessed with who would play the publicist. Every once in a while, they would hyper-focus on a certain role, and this one in particular. And no matter who was around, they just were like, no, 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 no. And finally, uh, the night before, they were like, oh, maybe because we'd gone through every person in the world, we, they, I finally convinced them how, how great Mary was, and she jumped on a plane and flew in cold, and just we threw her into the wardrobe, and she... Again, was another actor who was completely jet lagged from having no setup time. We never had any real rehearsal time with the actors, which unfortunately is always a drag. This was a funny day. Here's uh, the exterior of Uncle Meats, the record store where Lori works, where we meet uh, Howard Hessman and uh, Brea Grant, who is her new friend, her new hip friend that she sort of, in a way, replaced Annie with her new hipper friends. The exteriors of this were a little weird to shoot because the night before, uh, Georgia had gotten a blizzard and it had dumped eight inches of snow suddenly everywhere. So we had to go outside and try to figure out how to melt all the snow because it, it, I mean, it went from looking like fall to a winter wonderland in, in the course of a couple hours. It was bizarre. Howard was the perfect choice after meeting him and hanging out with him for some sort of like, you know, like you know, left-wing, kind of righteous, hippie, old hippie guy, because that's sort of how he is in person anyway, so he was perfect. Are you going to come and rock balls with Harley and me at the Phantom Jam? And the Phantom Jam, which becomes significant later, and they brief mention of it. Laurie Strode, always wearing some sort of, like, DC hardcore punk rock shirt. All the people in those bands were very cool and let us use everything. They loaded us up with every all kinds of uh, gear everywhere you look. There's, uh, I never wanted anything to be phony, so we always wanted to reach out and make sure that we had real stuff everywhere. You know, the Circle Jerks records and Black Flag and Government Issue, Minor Threat stuff everywhere. Or, and Frank Zappa, Almond Brothers. I mean, you can never just use everything. You have to reach out to every single person to get the permission. And we went crazy. Our clearances department were working overtime, so we could get clearance on all this stuff. But we got it. For some reason, I always had the vision of that giant picture of Frank Zappa on the toilet. And it was incredibly difficult to clear that, but... We got it, and then kick out the jams, MC5 we used here, which, uh, yeah, we got a nice letter from Wayne Kramer from the MC5 afterwards. Excited that we used the song. Here we go back to the main hotel. We had one nice day, and it was with Malcolm. We shot in a luxurious hotel in Atlanta. His scenes in the lobby, these scenes, and later in his hotel room. Because most of the time we're out in a field in the rain. In this version, it's pretty similar to the theatrical except there was just more business at the press conference you know we jumped right to the questions in the theatrical but here I let Loomis kind of go through his opening spiel about the Freudian ties of Michael and his mother and how Loomis is the surrogate father which starts making a lot of what we see in the movie make more sense and why Dr. Loomis's so significant to Michael and why his mother's so significant. 
Whereas once we lost this, it just started seeming like, oh, people are seeing ghosts, and we have no real reason for it. So again, you know, what may have just seemed like a disposable chit-chat becomes real, you know, character-driven moments that help explain the things that are going on. And again, you know, in the, in the quest to tighten things up too much in the editing process, you start really losing the heart and soul of the characters. You never really made it clear whether you believe it was nurture or... And again here, Loomis answers this question. I would like to answer it in part... Actually, I don't even know if that question was in the, the theatrical, but he, he has this great quote where he takes a George Bernard Shaw quote and twists it around in order to incorporate Michael Myers into it. It just really helps to show Malcolm... You know, it's great for Malcolm because Malcolm's a great actor and it gives him some flair to display. He's not just running around yelling catchphrases about Michael Myers. It gives him, you know, some... Some pretty choice dialogue to play around with, and he does a good job with it. Famine and Michael Myers. <laughs> and it, it, it builds up that he's out there on his book tour more, loving every minute of it. He's a celebrity. So now when this question about does he feel responsible for the deaths is asked, it, you know, she comes in and ruins the party as opposed to it just happening. I have tremendous sympathy for all the families involved. And... Do I personally feel responsible, ma'am? No, I do not. And I've said that many times. This was the day, I remember right before we started shooting this, um, was when the news came that all the film from the night before was destroyed. So all of our spirits were uh, rock bottom. It's really hard to be told that everything you've just killed yourself doing is destroyed and now you've got to like start over. But we had a brief moment of uh, feeling crappy. Then we jumped back in and started doing all this. This, I remember this was a tricky day for Malcolm because it was such a bunch of wordy dialogue and I think he he was having a sugar crash and I suddenly he had some orange juice and he was jumped back to life. But I remember it was it was stressing him out for a while. Here's Here we were out in a field uh, filming this. I remember this was actually the sun was coming up. We were trying to get that just so we could get the natural light. Remember that, that grass was soaking wet and pretty tall and Sherry was pretty terrified to walk across it she was freezing at all times in that dress, ice cold. But she was convinced there were rats and snakes and other creatures in the grass. So it's pretty funny. And Tyler and all of it, we're all down in the grass with the camera crew, everybody's soaking wet. This actually looks, this to me always looked like a fake set, even though it's the real barn that was in the field. For some reason it, 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 it looked fake. Sometimes, the, sometimes real things look fake. Here's Michael's first real interaction with his vision of his mother. And this, you know, we introduce young Michael so that we know that from now on, whenever young Michael speaks, it's the mind of, everything's the mind of adult Michael. What his mom says, what he says, it's all in his own mind. But it's a way to create a, some kind of communication. Because the problem I had in my mind was, you know, in the first movie, I, I had... Michael Myers could have a voice due to the fact that we had a lot of young Michael talking, but in this movie, I didn't want Michael to not have a voice. So that was the device I created. Here's a, an additional, photo, additional photography we did several months later. We actually shot this in Connecticut on a, on a small airport landing strip that pretty much looked just like the field in Georgia we had shot in. And uh, Mark Boone and Betsy Rue and Dwayne Whitaker came in one day and shot this. They were all great to work with. And by this point, the nights were very, very short. We got, we had this elaborate thing planned, and pff, 
as as always, you know. Never quite works out the way you want. But this looks beautiful, you know, we, we knew that we had it, we didn't want it to be just them attacking, we knew we wanted it to be kind of artsy and weird, and I always had this vision that the truck would look like a UFO almost in the field. So we devised this plan with Brandon, our Tross, our DP, that, you know, they'd basically always be backlit, and it was... We added in a lot of fog, but it was pretty foggy out there anyway, it's pretty much how it looked in real life. And again, you can see it worked out great because even though this was much later, we shot this in like July, it was freezing cold for some reason. You can see everyone's breath. So it still had a, a good like fall look in the mid, you know. So that was one thing I had a trouble achieving in the first film by shooting in, you know, summertime in California. You can't quite get that cold fallness. But it was always the appropriate weather. Now again, working with dogs never seems to work. We hired this dog, we were auditioned dogs, 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 and the only thing this dog had to do was bark. And it was the one thing it would not do. We could not get this dog to bark, no matter what it needed. We added the barking later, obviously, but coming up later you'll see how useless the dog was for us. So this is the first real appearance of new Michael putting on his mask, so he's I decided to slow it down, sort of milk it a little bit, so we really have our Michael putting on his mask iconic moment, like we did in the first film. Now, you can see the sky is a little bit blue. It's our, we're already losing our our night, so the eye slash was an insert done later, as was any of the stabbing or impaling we did later, because we ran out of time. We we just had to blast through this. And then down here on the ground, we shot that later on a soundstage of Dwayne down on the ground, but it matches perfectly, you can't tell. And here again, I decided that, you know, things are pretty frantic, but it's decided to strip out the sound, slow it down, and really milk the moment of his attack. Here's where we, we you know, we, we shoot, shot this scene, obviously, in continuity because we had to, because we didn't want to be replacing glass on windows, because we couldn't. At this point, we're out of time, so I came up with the idea we'll just finish it off in one big wide shot. Because there was no other time. I mean, as soon as I yelled cut after this, it was like the sun was up and we were, we were done. Now, all we needed for this dog to do is bark at Tyler. And he barked once, and there it is. He stood in front of that dog for 10 minutes doing everything he could to antagonize it, and that dog would not bark. Now we're back to the bracket house with their pizza scene this is one of my favorite scenes to shoot and actually is one of my favorite scenes in the movie just because it's just a nice little scene between the three people which we don't get a lot of this is really the only really true scene between these three characters who's Lee Marvin did I stutter paint your wagon the professionals Lee Marvin the Lee Marvin thing was funny because I did get to rehearse this scene with these actors, and that's probably why it it, it works well. And I remember when Brad was doing the whole Lee Marvin thing, I don't think... I wasn't sure if Danielle was kidding, but I don't think Scout had any idea who Lee Marvin was either. So it was pretty funny. So Brad actually sort of was going on some of this rant that wasn't in the script, trying to actually explain it to the actors. 
And it was so funny, I just added it in the script because it was just so natural of him trying to explain to these young girls who Lee Marvin was. Little dead rotting flesh never heard. Oh God, do we have to do this every fucking time we eat together? <laughs> we need to get you up. As you can see, Brad's the more seasoned actor. He never takes a bite of the pizza, ever. Whereas the other two girls kept eating and eating and eating. And by the end of the night, they were both nauseous and Brad had not taken one bite of pizza. Now this is back to the barn where Michael first shot, saw his mother. When we shot this, it was daylight, the sun was up. We quickly tried to tent the barn and we tented off this little tiny section where we could uh, slit open the dog. And it works fine. I don't know what Tyler was eating, some kind of mushed up bread with fake blood and it was pretty disgusting, whatever it was. We made him eat a lot of gross stuff. The bracket house was an actual house. Every room in it is in a room in the house, which was nice because it was a real practical location. Even though we knocked down some walls and restructured the bathrooms because they weren't very shootable. You know, those, the endless vomiting was pretty funny. Pretty disgusting. She pretty much got it everywhere. I think she broke the toilet actually doing it. Sorry, I was such a bitch earlier. Uh, I get it. And now coming up is another moment that I went back and reshot. I had shot this originally of Michael sort of like zoning out and nodding off to sleep. But we had the sun had come up and ruined the shot and it just didn't match. So we went back and re-grabbed that six months later. This was our last day of filming on the whole movie where I knew that we, the studio was not going to give us another day to shoot, but I also knew that if I just kept shooting, they wouldn't stop me. So I actually kind of shot two days and just called it one day. We just kept shooting. The sun would come up, the sun would go down, the sun would come up, and we just kept shooting and shooting and shooting. Because I knew no one was going to bother to come down and try to stop us. But they, So we had to just kind of get, you know, be renegades on that one. This was all sort of improvised at the last minute because what we were going to shoot got changed and the location we actually had built for all this had gotten washed away by the rains. We were going to film it in this crazy lake bed and we built this thing and it was just destroyed. So at the last minute, we just gathered all of our props on a soundstage and I just came in and constructed it all. We didn't have very much, so we could only shoot one direction. So we had to take everything and we kept every time we go to the reverse shot, we're just flipping everything around. Because it was tiny, like there, you know, we just flipped everything around. My baby. And again, you know, another vision of the craziness of Michael's mind and how he dreams and sees the world. Are you family again? But I was, I really enjoyed the, the snow. I always want to shoot in the snow, so I kept adding snow, and the crazy Halloween guys were pretty incredible. And the, the black crosses, you know, I thought it had kind of a Ken Russell feel. This cartoon was great. We were always trying to find spooky cartoons we could use, and it was just always impossible. No one ever, as soon as people find out what you're using it for, they don't want you to use it, but that one worked out okay. There's Buddy, her teddy bear. And now everywhere in Georgia was just cool-looking stuff, so we would just shoot tons of cool stuff like this. Actually, this is Connecticut, our entering Haddonfield sign, and him walking off there, we, uh, we grabbed them a million years later. 
but we just needed some kind of bridge to show that the approaching storm of Michael was coming. Please, Sam. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I could stay a few extra days. It depends on if there's something or someone that motivates you. Nikki Whalen <laughs> as the reporter, back in Georgia here in front of the Myers house. And we had gotten clearance on calling everything like 18 Action News. Then suddenly when the movie was done, they're like, oh, no, we can't call it 18 Action News. So they actually went in and digitally removed the word action from everything. Every microphone, every van. See, on the van, it said action news, but now it's just like three lines news. So again, it was more like weird screw-ups that were causing us hell. Seems like the less money you have, the more things that go wrong to waste the little money you have. Explain it to me. I would really like to understand. I'm selling the sizzle, not the steak. The sizzle? This was a, a hot, steaming hot day from one extreme to the other. You'd be like freezing cold night, steaming hot day, snowing, raining. But we were always able to match the look pretty well. Here we just see what a douchebag that Dr. Loomis has turned into. When I want your opinion, I'll beat it out of you. Here, now take that and go sit in the car. Go on, get your ass in there. Okay, hi, where do you want me? This here is was originally shot differently. I was going to use it more like Laurie was having a seizure. And then I decided to use it as a double dream where we think that this is the morning and she's waking up. And then later we find out that she's sort of having a, a dream within a dream. This here was one of those things that I just, I had this idea one day, I was driving to set and I just came up there that, oh man, we should recreate the opening scene with Scout playing young Michael. And luckily, uh, young Michael, Chase and Scout were about the same size, so she fit into his clothes. We quickly found everything. The kitchen layout of the house we used in Pasadena wasn't that different than the one in Georgia, and we just recreated this scene. You know, none of this was prepared. This was all thrown together that morning at the last second. You know, again, I said, Wayne, is there any way we can slit someone's throat? as we did with William Forsythe, and he had a leftover neck appliance that was for another actor and was huge, but we got it to fit around, uh, you know, Daniel Harris, who's obviously has a very tiny neck, but we made it work, and it was just another weird moment that works. And that, these are exact dip, you know, duplicates of the shots from the first Halloween. And this crazy ranting, one night... Uh, one night after we were done shooting, I set up a thing outside where I took both girls and put these strobe lights. We painted the, put in contacts, painted blood on their eyes. That brief shot of the Myers grave was also shot on the last night of filming. And I just had the girls scream obscenities straight into camera. I didn't know why. I just thought it would be something that I would use later. It wasn't a master plan. The zooming through the field shot was uh, just steady cam running through the fields. A big change here is that Lori wakes up from this dream and it was a dream. It wasn't a double dream as in the theatrical. She gets up and she's. we now see that she's been over-medicating herself. She should have her medication, but it's all gone because she's been having more attacks than her therapist realizes. And she's basically been doing a lot of uh, drugs there. 
as Lou Martini earlier, as is Frankenstein in the park, at, you know, entertaining the kids as Laurie goes by. And here's the second therapist scene, which was always my favorite, where we really start to see how far spun out Laurie is getting. That she's not holding it together at all. And she's really losing a grip on everything. And, you know, her rage is building up, her confusion, her everything. That she just wants to medicate herself. She can't deal with Halloween. She can't deal with anything anymore. And she's sort of like having these extreme highs and lows. She's becoming completely manic. Lashing out at everybody and everything. You know, one second she's happy, one second she's not. But she's just descending deeper and deeper. Whereas without these scenes, you know, the, the fear everybody seemed to have was that, oh, Lori won't be likable. When in reality, that's really not the issue. I mean, this girl's been through hell. So whether or not she's likable is, to me, irrelevant. I mean, this way it plays much more real that she's gone through hell and she's sinking even deeper. She's losing a complete grip on reality. And I think with these scenes added back in, you really, her journey is, she's actually more sympathetic because you just see how damaged she is and that nobody really understands how messed up she is because it's not just the after effects of her trauma, it's the fact that she's losing her mind in, in, in the same fashion as, you know, Michael Myers lost his mind. And we start seeing that she's can't control her anger at anyone anymore. She's just lashing out, wanting drugs here with the therapist, but then she breaks down immediately. This is one of my favorite scenes, and it's, it's very unfortunate it wasn't in the theatrical. I thought it was one of Scout's strongest moments in the movie. And I really missed it, and I'm very happy it's back in here. Fuck this! I'm tired of your... How are you, Lori? I'm so concerned at a hundred bucks an hour. You know what? I would be fucking concerned at a hundred bucks an hour. I'm really concerned right bullshit, now. No, it's bullshit. not bullshit. You know what? Please You're more fucked up than I am, you crazy... That was a great day for Margo and Scout to get. They really knock that one out of the park and now where are we headed well here's one another one of our aerial shots of michael walking which leads us to brad watching the news report on television you know originally in theatrical we would jump to laurie was also watching the same news report but there was an additional scene i had shot where it's another confrontation between Laurie and Annie that when I started eating away at the relationship with them in the theatrical, well, you go, you couldn't go here because it, the, the anger was, wasn't justified, wasn't explained. But now we see what's happening. We see what's happening. You know, Brad is, it's the same information here with Brad getting the information about Michael's body being lost back and forth. And, you know, we filmed this in front of a, a light box because we dumped in all the, you know, the TV stuff later. But here's where we would jump to the rabbit and red, but now we jump upstairs where we see that Lori, who has, whose therapist is refusing to give her drugs, is now trying to medicate herself by getting drunk. Anything to not, just not have to deal with reality. Annie comes in to just try to make some small talk. What's up with the booze? And in one second, it's already on. Meet my new best friend. You know, meet my new best friend, implying, you know, anyone the new work friends, you know, just the pushing away of Annie, the new Lori, the new friends, the new everything. And then it's on. They just, finally Annie cracks and responds with what she's been putting up with for the past two years dealing with Lori. 
And again, you know, I think it, it it's valuable to the movie because you just see, I mean, two people that have been through hell and they're just not equipped to deal with it on any level. And, you know, whereas they should be bonding together, they're at war with each other all the time. And, you know, it's very sad to see their relationship crumble. And we're about to jump to The Rabbit in Red, which is, of course, where Michael Myers' mom, Deborah, used to work. Now, this billboard, which looks fairly innocent of the little bunnies and the picture there with Sherry, caused such a stir that seven different people called 911 to try to shut us down when we were working. This interior here was a strip club close to Atlanta that we shot later, but the exterior was just in some neighborhood and people were going ballistic with what we were doing, even though see Miltus. Dan Roebuck, Jeff Daniel Phillips as Howard, Sylvia Jeffries as Misty, and there's Big Lou, um, who was called Lou Martini in the first Halloween, and somehow between this, the first Halloween and the second Halloween, we lost the rights to the name Lou Martini, so suddenly we had to go through in post and change the TV to Big Lou, another costly uh, error. But it was happening every time we turned. I'm surprised we could uh, we had the rights to use 42 degrees on the screen there. But it was just weird. We we were losing rights to use the names of our own characters in some bizarre way. <laughs> Green that yeah, suits you, man. It really suits you. It's like the color of money. <laughs> Dumbass. <laughs> hey, hey, Howard. Let me ask you a question. I got a riddle for you. What does a stripper do with her asshole before she dances? I don't know that. She gives him 10 bucks and she tells him. So, this was all done in um, Georgia interior in this really, really disgusting strip club that was probably one of the filthiest places I'd ever gone in. We went in and cleaned it with a cleaning crew just to get it up to the level of disgusting because it was just beyond. I, the things we were finding were just hideous. I wouldn't even tell the actors because they wouldn't even step foot in it if they knew how gross it was. But they were kind of wondering why we were all wearing bio hazmat suits. Anyway, Jeff walks out the door, cut to exterior in another location, which we had shot a couple weeks earlier. Freezing cold night, um, had rained earlier in the day and then turned to freezing cold. And um, what was going on here? This was actually Jeff's first night, so he was improvising some stuff in his own. Jeff was really good at coming up with just crazy business. He would developed this whole scenario in his mind about the ex-relationship between him and the stripper and on and on. And his encounter with Michael here. Jeff Phillips as, as the bouncer was actually, I think, one of the first people I cast. He's He was plays the Geico caveman, and I love those commercials. When I found out he was the caveman, I was like, I gotta have that guy. This pretty much plays out as almost exactly as scripted, you know, real... Here's a funny story here. Don't give me no reason. Don't give me no reason. Jeff told me one night he was in, uh, I think it was Pink's in L.A. And he was eating with his friend and someone came up and asked him for money. And he got all tough and said, look, man, don't give me no reason to scare away this old man who asked him for change. And I guess uh, his friend has been humiliating him on the fact that he scared an old man by saying that. So we had to put it in the movie just to uh, humiliate him further. It was actually his idea, but... He's very funny. Trust me. Filthy, dirty hippie. 
Most of the people that came into audition for the bouncer were just big bouncer types, but I like Jeff because he was really had a lot of bizarre per personality and was all barking, no bite. Here we go. Slam. Now that was an unfortunate moment. That was a double, obviously. That was a stuntman. And at that moment, I remember the stuntman made the in the uh, mishap of saying to Tyler, don't worry, you won't hurt me when you slam me down, which Tyler always takes as a challenge to hurt the stuntman for some reason. So he picked that guy up and slammed him down on the ground as hard as he could, and that guy was pretty rattled. I don't think he was expecting that. So there's a couple more scenes of that coming up later in the movie. We had our articulated dummy with the crushed head, which was pretty amazing. Here's a little brief moment coming up that was uh, cut from the theatrical. Nothing... It was more of a, a beautiful shot and just another surreal moment. You know, it's a nice wipe of frame here, and then we go inside the rabbit in red for just a brief moment of Michael and his mother. Did I always like this because with the disco ball in the background and the sound effects, it almost seemed like an alien planet they were on. We are done waiting. Only a you know, and just... We start seeing that some Michael just... In his mind, he feels his mother is telling him that the more blood he spills, the closer he is to bringing the family back together. And now when we go back inside, this was shot many months later in Connecticut, in a little office building across the street from uh, Friendly's, which is very funny because you'd look outside and there'd be all these families going to Friendly's and having their day, and across the street, they had no idea what we were up to. Bad things, always. Tiny little room, gathered everybody back, built this set, just closed off some walls. and I think, I remember I'd gotten a note from the studio, make sure she's got a bikini on and she's not naked. So I obviously went out of my way to make sure she was completely naked through the whole scene because that's just my thing. If someone tells me to do something, I'm going to do the exact opposite, just, just to prove a point. So we kept her completely naked through the whole scene, just just because I mean because it makes it more disturbing but but also because someone told me not to we have an insert coming up of uh well first we're gonna see the Howard Boggs crushed head dummy which at one point had gotten cut out of the movie so when we went back to reshoot I was very happy to uh, bring it back in because Wayne had put a lot of work into this and it was pretty fantastic now here is an insert of the broken arm which we shot way, way, almost right before we released the movie, we shot that little insert and stuck it in there. Again, we had a stuntman to double all this, but we went with the actors, except for one brief moment. This is all Dan Roebuck flailing around and getting slammed into the wall. He was very good at making his arm look broken there, flopping around, looks like a prosthetic, but it's his real arm just kind of dangling. Tyler throws him pretty hard into the wall here. Now, I feel bad for this girl, Sylvia, who played Misty, because she could even, by the end of this night, she could barely walk. Just getting tossed around like that. She was like hobbled out of there like she was 90 years old. Now, the hits on the glass are actually the stunt girl, because she's actually using the force of her body hitting the glass to break it. It wasn't pre-broken or anything like that. We wanted it to be real, so... Pretty brutal. Brutal to film, brutal to watch. Brutal all the way around. And then we jump back to our exterior that we filmed like six months earlier. 
son of a bitch. And here's Dr. Loomis's book, which has now come out, and Sheriff Brackett has bought it. Um, we couldn't close... The reason that we came up with that this is new Loomis, this is old Loomis, and we have the old picture of Malcolm McDowell in the back of the book is that Malcolm's actual deal to be in the movie didn't close until about 10 seconds before he was supposed to shoot, so we never got to take new photos of him in order to have him in the movie, so we had to go back and use old photos. So that's when, when that happened, I kind of rewrote the dialogue about new Loomis, old Loomis, because it didn't really make sense to have the old pictures. And those are the things that we'd have to do basically 24-7, because nothing ever went according to plan, so you had to just roll with the punches, and every time there was a mistake, you had to figure out a way to make the mistake seem like an important plot point or something that obviously you did intentionally. Here was the one restaurant in town that everybody uh, seemed to like to eat at that was staying there working on the crew. We turned it into a bookstore, but it was actually an Italian restaurant that everybody really liked. I don't remember ever eating there, but so when you go inside, it's just a restaurant. Here's a scene that got cut originally because everybody seemed so up in arms to be able to see Michael Myers' face in the daylight. I, I never thought it was a problem because... We've completely, you know, recreated the legend of Michael Myers. He's not the boogeyman in the shadows. He's this other creature, this other, and he's a living, breathing person. So I had no problem with it, but, you know, and once it came out, I missed it. But this is the one moment where we really understand Michael's conscious of Dr. Loomis being out there in the world. Because remember, every time his mother speaks, it's his own thoughts. And she tells him by seeing this big billboard that he's still out there, rich and famous all because of their pain. He's still out there. And we understand now through this scene what Michael actually does understand, that he is conscious of everything that's going on. He's not just wandering around like a big lug. So, you know, once that got lost, we kind of lost again Michael's sort of like surrogate father approach to Dr. Loomis. Every time we tried to film something, everything was out of business. So we scouted this bookstore, and it, we go, okay, great, we're going to shoot here. By the time we got to shooting three weeks later, the store was out of business and abandoned and gone, and it was just an empty room. So we had to come in and rebuild an entire bookstore. And as we were shooting, people kept coming to our set thinking, oh, they were like, oh, great, the store's reopened. They were so happy. We had to break the news to them that actually... It was just fake. And there's Chet wearing his uh, WWMD shirt, What Would Michael Do? Which came up in another scene, but I cut it out. It was came up in the press conference, but it, it came out. And obviously, I put him in there first so that Loomis could encounter a wacky fan. So that when uh, Robert Curtis Brown, who is Linda's dad from the first movie, steps up and he seems like a very you know normal, regular guy, Loomis's guard is down. In the cup he's holding was uh, blood, and I was going to have him... We did a couple of takes where he threw blood on Loomis, and then I came up with the idea, like, well, not only is that not that big of a deal, but it's a real pain in the ass to keep having to change Malcolm's shirt after every take. And it never lands the same, and it was just a pain. So then I thought, well, maybe he should just pull a gun. So our prop guy went out to the truck and got a gun, and change, you know, we've changed the scene, and it was one of those changes that's so much for the better. You just changed the dynamic of everything, made it much more intense to think that this, uh, you know, this LL Bean style, you know, suburban dad had been pushed to the edge where he's going to go to a bookstore and shoot somebody, and it made the whole scene just ten times more intense. 
You son of a bitch! I'm gonna kill you, Lomas! I'm gonna kill you, goddammit! More of our aerial day. We filmed everything we could that day that we had that helicopter. Part of the job, I suppose. Again, Malcolm gets to ride around in a limo. All Malcolm's days were sweet. He was in a hotel room, a limo, a conference room. It was always good. He was always happy. And uh, obviously we couldn't fit many people in this, so it was just the two actors, me, and um, you know, on that one, my uh, DP, Brandon Tross, was operating. We're all jammed in the car, driving around, filming all this. And these guys were great together, you know. Mary and Malcolm really had uh, good chemistry together and worked well together. And we start seeing the first cracks in uh, Dr. Loomis's conscience. This was, uh, we shot this quickly uh, right after uh, the bookstore scene. This is the parking lot right behind the bookstore. Our prop guy was freaking out because he only had one copy of the book. And he didn't realize Scout was going to pound it against the uh, steering wheel until it was destroyed. And then he had to quickly figure out how to make more. Because why would we possibly need more than one? What could go wrong? Anyway, it all worked. Here's just more shots of uh, Michael Myers walking that we stole everywhere. Back to uh, back to the bracket house at night. Lori comes rushing in, some bad brains cranking in the background. We were quickly running out of time this night, so it, we shot this very simply. Tried to play it in many, just as few a shots as possible, even though I have a tendency to want to get things from as many possible angles as I can. Fuck it. I mean, Daddy's little princess knows all, right? What are you talking about? Hey, stop. Calm down. Look at me. What is going on? Let me just call my dad, okay? We could talk to him. And the mystery of Angel Myers continues. Obviously, Annie knows nothing about it as Lori is uh, spinning out of control. Diamond Head song, Am I Evil, which we had filmed this all to another song which we had the rights to, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, our music budget ran out. We couldn't use it, so that was kind of a drag because it was all synced to a certain song. But this song worked just as good. I want you to head over to my house and keep an eye on Annie for me, okay? Oh, boss, last year she tried to kick me in the nuts. You know she's not going to like this. We had filmed a lot more stuff in the police station, I remember, with the cops, uh, Bill Faberbaki. You know, just some chit-chat going back and forth between the cops. But I cut most of it out because the tone of it, it was, it was all good stuff. It just got too light. Here's an exterior that we, we built that was very cool that led into an art gallery and then jump ahead to something we filmed in another location. We filmed all this dialogue in the same day as the therapist scene, so some very heavy scenes What's that? that we had to do all in the same day. Like, I, I just found something out that's kind of freaking me the fuck out. <laughs> okay, what is that? And here we go. Uh, <laughs> you know, she starts revealing that she's... Angel Myers, Michael Myers' sister, and I thought this scene worked out great because this had the potential to become really silly. And here's Harley coming out, dressed as, you know, Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror Picture Show, although I don't think technically we ever had the right to say that. That's why we don't say it. 
but um, obviously the costumes are exactly the same, and that was always the intention. I don't mean you understand what the fuck I'm saying. Coming up here, you can see a mistake that uh, happened with the prop book that for some reason they could never solve the mystery of. When she's flipping through the book, you can see the face of Daig, who played young Michael Myers in the first movie, who by the second movie had gotten so big, it was inconceivable that he could play young Michael Myers. You'll see it briefly when Laurie flips through the book. I mean, if you freeze frame it, you'll see it. If You won't really notice it, but coming up. See, flips the page, boom, boom. Quick shot of Dig. Go back and freeze frame it. But uh, I don't know, for some reason, that the wrong photos were in the book. That never really got fixed, but it's no big deal. This is fucking insane. Our next guest gained infamy. This was all filmed on the day in the hotel. This was all very spontaneous. We found a little TV station, and we actually used a lot of their, their sets that were just lying around and reconfigured them for the talk show and my intention here though was to try to think of a way to underscore the seriousness of Dr. Loomis as a doctor and I thought what better to have him with Weird Al Yankovic you know I mean you can't be a serious doctor be doing these chat shows and the Weird Al thing was a last minute thing again I was talking to Chris Hardwick who plays David Newman who was coming in to do this and I had the idea we need another guest on the couch with Dr. Loomis but we didn't have anybody and he was like, well, I, I had dinner with Weird Al last night. Maybe he'll do it. And we asked Al, and he said, sure. And he flew in the next day. He didn't, he didn't even think twice about it. He came in. He, he improvised some little things with Chris Hardwick, which we filmed. And he was fantastic. Real trooper and nailed it. You know, basically wore his own clothes. That was the one condition he wanted, that he could wear his own clothes. And came in and did his thing. Lobby of the same building, obviously. This was a really crazy night. This was uh, one of those nights where everything was melting down. Nothing was working. The monitors were not working. The sound was not working. So I kept having to run up and look through the camera, run back and run all around because we always shoot with two cameras. And it's really difficult. And, you know, I don't, nothing was working. So it was really hard to tell we were even filming. This little kid was hilarious. He was tiny and... He never really acted, and we were trying to tell him what to do. And somehow he turned all Hollywood on us in one heartbeat. We're like, okay, you know, we're trying to talk to him like a little kid, like, okay, you know, just run down here and stop when you get here. And he just looked at us like, don't worry, I know how to hit my mark, man. So he was, uh, even though he had done, like, nothing, he was already a jaded Hollywood player. I've spent my whole fucking life being good, and look where it's gotten me. Fucking nowhere. <laughs> Back to Lori Strode uh, in Maya's house, deciding that she wants to party. This was someone's house. They actually lived there, but it didn't look like this. They had it was this weird house that was filled from floor to ceiling with like stuff, like tons of things. Like the guys sold stuff in yard sales or something. So we had to have like ten thousand Tupperware containers and all kinds of stuff. It was the most pack rat house I'd ever seen, and we went in and took two days just to empty this guy's crap out of his house. Then we went in and repainted the whole house and turned it into, like, hipster, you know, punk rock girl pad, but it was pretty funny. Well, coming up is the Phantom Jam, which was a very, very crazy night to film. It was supposed to be four nights of shooting, and it turned into one. 
so we had to cram in a lot. And now we're at the Phantom Jam on stage, uh, Captain Clegg and the Night Creatures, which is a fictitious band created by Jesse Dayton for, specifically for the film. These scenes were shortened for the theatrical, but I felt that really when I sat in the theater and watched it, they needed to be longer because we really do a lot of build up to the Phantom Jam. And then it, to me, it felt like it just, it just whizzed by. And I really like the idea that for a brief moment that the, you know, it becomes like a, a rock concert movie. And you really feel that these girls are out in a real place. And, you know, you want to just get a break from it. And there's so much death and carnage. It's just fun to see Lori out with her new friends trying to find a way to deal with... This is her way of dealing with the fact that she just found out she's Michael Myers' sister. She's going to go out, party until she drops dead. She doesn't care anymore. And when these scenes got tightened up, I just feel like that a lot of that just went away with it. It just became flashy business for no real reason. So we do, we've extended all these scenes some, just so you, you know, you, you're just more in the place as it's happening, rather than just quick snippets. Which brings us back out to the bracket house, the complete opposite of what's going on. You know, Annie is like dealing with her regular life. Her dad has sent a cop to sit outside the house again, as he did last year, because in this version, of course, this is two years after the murders, not one. And of course, nobody wants to deal with the boss's daughter because she's a, you know, quite a piece of work and pretty aggressive. And in this version also, Uncle Seymour Coffins has more to do. I made him more on stage more because I thought he really gave the movie, like, really grounded it, you know, because Jeff got on stage and really did this whole routine. Very little of it was scripted. The audience didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't know. Nobody knew. And it really... This gives it the flavor that you need that you start feeling like it's real. And again, when it got tightened up, I just felt like, you know, it just didn't have the vibe. It felt like we were rushing through everything, and it drives me crazy. I think people are more patient when they watch movies at home than they are in a theater sometimes. Because you can pause it and go to the bathroom and come back, and so they're willing, they're willing to invest themselves more. And also, you know... It, as time went on, I realized that even though the character of Wolfie, played by Matt Bush here, was brief, he was seemed to really score points every time he opened his mouth. You know, everything he said was pretty funny. People seemed to be pretty memorable. People seemed to like him. So we extended these scenes a little bit where, you know, he's at the party, dressed as Wolfman, acting like he's a player. But now that he's got this girl who's like 10 times more aggressive than him, once he gets her back to the van, he doesn't know what to do with her. She's going to tear him apart is a scene of a water tower that got cut. I just thought it added some nice scope to the, the van as we're walking towards it. Had a lot of fun in this van. The structure of this is similar to the theatrical, except it just, everything is broadened. There's just a little more. We, we jump back and forth between the, the interior of the Phantom Jam a few more times and stretches it out and lets Uncle Seymour breathe. He's telling his disgusting jokes. You know, to the horror of everybody. He's not really funny, but he's funny because he's not funny. And he seems to be getting drunker and drunker as the night progresses. He looks sweatier and messier. And, you know, here's a Wolfie trying to impress Harley with his, his van. Yeah, the ladies love it. You know, that he gets a lot. But nobody's buying it. You know, we're back inside with our... A blonde and a jack-o'-lantern both have three holes. You know... 
un Uncle Seymour is clearly overstaying his welcome on stage and starting to get uncomfortable to watch. You can tell the crowd just wants the band to play, but he's now drunk and won't get off stage. And I think it actually helps create tension in the movie when we jump back and forth between these scenes here, where now we have this uncomfortable sort of like... Weird romance going on where Wolfie's trying hard to make conversation, but it's pathetic. And then, uh, you know, Harley keeps coming on stronger and stronger, and he's getting weirder and weirder. And she's getting fed up. Now Uncle Seymour's being uh, heckled by the audience, and it's getting even more tense on stage. And then finally, Harley just decides to take charge of the situation. Fairly minor changes, but just enough to give each scene enough room, a little more room to breathe, and you just you, you just feel the characters in their, their world more. And, you know, it's all the difference sometimes. I gotta take a piss. I'm gonna have to piece this out of here. I'll be right back. This was another sacrifice scene that was supposed to take place outdoors and was a big elaborate scene, but again... We got rained out and lost some of our shooting days, so we had quickly had to reconfigure this into this van sequence that that worked out good, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't what was in the script. It was sort of like what I had to come up with on the spot. And he's taking a whiz, and of course Michael's going to appear. Whoop! We cranked the film a little bit there just so Michael would come flying in out of nowhere. Here we, uh, we could see, I couldn't decide what would be scarier, seeing Michael slowly approaching in the background, and she's oblivious, or just having him fly in out of nowhere, so what I did here is I went through and digitally removed Michael, so that when he breaks the window, he really just kind of appears out of nowhere until the glass actually breaks. And we just intercut it with the kids dancing, just like, you know, they're partying on while their friend's getting strangled in the parking lot. All good fun. <laughs> A lot of business for one night to shoot, but we got it done. This was, again, back at the same hotel, so everything, this, the stuff with Weird Al, the press conference, the lobby, anything with Loomis was all shot in one day at this one hotel. So we, we actually were, this was another scene that I made up on the spot because we had another scene where Loomis was at a radio station and he finds out the news about Michael Myers and all this business. But then those days got cut from the script, so again, I had to figure out a way to like get Loomis from here to there. And we were shooting in that hotel, and I thought, like, well, maybe they'll let us use one of the suites upstairs for free, and we can run upstairs and film Loomis in a hotel room. So I, I got this as an extra shot to see him watching the TV, and then later he's in the other room in the suite, and he sees the news report about Michael Myers. This scene in particular coming up, we definitely needed more space. Because I felt that, uh, you know, Laurie running lost drunk in the crowd just needed more room to breathe. We came back in so quick that I felt that people were almost confused as to what they were watching. But now it goes on long enough. You realize she's drunk. She's lost. You know, she's separated from Maya. She doesn't know what's going on. The band is now morphed into these creatures. She does, you know, and she's about to have her first vision of Deborah Myers. 
And, you know, we see this is real. I guess this is really the first moment in the movie where she's really, really losing her grip on reality. She's seeing things. She's having the same visions as her brother. You know, always in the snow. This is the point where Lori starts, in a way, mind-melding with her brother and starts beginning to see the same things he sees because I figured, you know, Michael Myers is crazy, then Angel Myers would be crazy too. So that she starts seeing the same thing he sees. That was quickly done one day. I remember what the, the, the scene with Sherry and Chase there. Took us uh, almost 20 minutes to light it and we were freaking out that we were wasting so much time. Because our schedule was so tight that basically uh, if we stopped and took a breath we were, would fall so radically behind schedule that we basically lit everything and then just shot. We never tweaked the lighting almost ever. That was one great thing about the way it was lit. We, you know, we never, you know, we never had time to readjust stuff. We were always shooting. In fact, we were getting complaints that we were shooting too much film. Now back at the bracket house. Where I believe we forgot to shoot the other side of this phone call, so we just stole some random snippets of Brad talking and just sort of cut him into what she was saying so it sounded like he was on the phone. And this here uh, with Greg, he's coming down and obviously Michael's going to step out from the tree and strangle him. And what was funny is that Tyler's so huge, but he really could, he hid behind that tree and you, you couldn't see him even if you were standing right there. It was so dark and it was it was pretty cool. And we kept delaying it longer and longer because, you know, Greg always wanted to know, well, when is he going to grab me? And I never want the actors to know when another actor is going to grab them because then they're all ready for it and they tend to want to, like, over-respond. So, you know, gave him time to light a cigarette and stand around and then suddenly he grabbed him. He never knew when it was coming. It's very dark out there shooting sometimes. We had almost no light. The only light we had going was that porch light in the background. Now, coming up here... Let's see what's happening. I remember we weren't going to have... I didn't. don't think in the script there was any moment where Michael attacks Annie. There was just going to be the aftermath. And I, then I realized it wasn't enough because at that point the Annie character kept becoming more and more significant. You know, sometimes you write things in a script and you just don't know how they're going to pan out and then you start shooting and certain things appear. Michael in the mirror. You know, in here I didn't want to have him... We filmed him kind of running after her and, and doing things but it you know just the size difference in the people made it almost silly so I decided to to, to you know to slow it down to just have him wipe frame and give a little bit of what happens and then you know fade out and all we hear is here is what takes place in the house you know the chaos of the attack and then later I will flash back to it briefly, but I didn't want to just have it play out because there was really, we had created such a horribly bloody aftermath that I couldn't really think of anything that would live up to it. So it was better to leave it to the audience's imagination of how she got to that state. 
You know, we always tried to use practical lighting. As you can see, there's a, a light in the back there to light everything. We never really threw up any lights to light anything. It was always just sort of like if there was light on the house or headlights to light things to keep it real. There's our dead officer in the car who was very bad at holding his breath. And coming up here is another scene that was cut from the theatrical because it felt like we just, at this point in the movie, maybe we just wanted to get it going on and, and you know, and keep the pace going. But after having more time to sit back and live with the movie, I actually felt like we needed to settle down for a second and have a moment with, you know, a good moment with Lori and Maya before Maya's demise. And there's just a little brief scene in the kitchen where Lori's clearly drunk and she's going to stop and make tea for them both. It's, you know, it's a short little scene, but it just lets the uh, the world that we're in calm down. And also, as the audience, you know that Annie has been murdered upstairs, but they're oblivious to it as they're down in the kitchen making tea. We don't know if Michael Myers is in the house or not. He could be gone. He could be there, you know. But then we find out as the look past here, coming up. Michael's still in the house. So now, you know, it's just a matter of time before bad things happen. It's just nice. I like it. It's just one good last moment with Maya before things turn bad. As Lori says, Cookie's not going to save her now. I don't think a cookie's going to save me. at this point the floor is all flooded and you'll see later that when uh, Brea tries to run out of the room she slips in the water because it was very slippery but you can't you know, the water doesn't read that great on film and here is the snippets of the attack that I filmed of Michael destroying the room and attacking Annie but I always thought it was more effective to just have these quick blasts come flying in rather than you know really show it and then the little quick moment of this. That was one of my favorite moments okay. where they just were backlit by that cool fan. And then again, as in the first film, Lori comes home to find Annie lying on the floor, horribly messed up. And now you'll see as she runs out of the room, she falls in the water. And run, slip, boom, floor's all wet. Whenever actors tend to fall down and stuff, if it works, I always use it because it's the most real they're ever going to run. Because after that, they always run more careful. Now, this was some really great stuff in here with uh, Scout and uh, Danielle. They were very terrific together. You know, as, as always, we're always shooting through things, trying to make it claustrophobic. It's very dark. It's very, very gnarly. Never very wide open. Tiny, tiny little bathroom with two cameramen jammed in there, shoved up under the toilet, all over the place. Now, coming up here is another one of these stuntman challenges I spoke of earlier. You know, she runs out, she gets grabbed, pulled back in, and then the stunt guy was like, "Don't worry, just slam her down on the table. She's she'll be fine. She's got a back pad on."
We had retractable dives, but we never used them because they're always too wimpy and they always break. So I put down a big block of wood next to the actress and Tyler was just stabbing as hard as possible into this big block of wood. So that way we could really feel the force of, uh, you know, how powerful he actually is. As opposed to carefully trying to stab somebody with a retractable knife, which always looks ridiculous. Hold on, baby, hold on. You know, Andy's gonna smell this on my clothes and kill me. Again, a nice big empty town square. We could do whatever we wanted. Beautiful shots. And there's a, actually there's Renee, Tyler's wife again, who was the officer earlier on. I gave her this kind of like Princess Leia hairdo just so that. I wanted each cop to be memorable in some way, so when they sh they don't just seem like extras. And you know, you do a simple thing like give someone a slightly weird hairdo, and when they pop up again later, people totally remember them. Baby, 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 <coughs> Annie, Annie, stay with me. Stay this is one of my favorite scenes. Very effective, you know, because in these type of movies, usually when people die, you don't care, you don't feel anything. But I thought these two together here really, you really feel as if her friend is dying and you really feel like she dies. It's not just like fun for the, you know, fun slasher movie crap. And the music is, I uh, recycled the music from the first Halloween when um, Deborah Myers commits suicide watching the old Super 8 movies of young Michael because that was a very sad moment in that movie, and the movie, that music was very effective, so I thought it'd be good to reprise that here. And another funny uh, moment is coming up here, not that it seems like it'd be funny, but... Again, uh, somehow the information didn't make it to the construction crew that they were supposed to make a breakaway door. So that door was supposed to be made out of balsa wood so Tyler could break through it. But again, somehow someone cut the balsa wood from the budget and they just put up a completely thick oak door of which no one told me nor Tyler or anyone. So Tyler actually, he was pissed when he came through that door, but he actually smashed his way through it, an actual locked door that was not breakaway in any way, shape or form. So he was not happy as usual. Now I had an extended scene of Michael chasing Lori outside here in the woods, but uh, not to keep harping on it, but when so many of our shooting days got cut, that was the days that got cut. So really I just, I had to get creative in, in how she was chased. And that's why I decided to use that sort of backlit bizarre shot and, and do the cross dissolve leading to here. This is quite different. This is actually back to our, a version that's almost the first version that me and uh, Glenn Garland, the editor, cut. And I don't know why... When we s previewed this, people just didn't seem to get it, and I didn't understand why, and I always felt that we were right. So we put it back to the original version where Sheriff Brackett finding his daughter in the bathroom really plays out. I thought Brad was particularly strong that night, his acting, and I just think what happened was the emotion coming through was uncomfortable for people and then you get sort of like people tend to laugh sometimes when they're uncomfortable and there was another feature that was put in here where you know he looks at his dead daughter who he loves so much we have these brief flashbacks of her as a child which seem for some reason to confuse everyone I don't know why 
but you know now that it's time to do the real version of the movie you know it's great and it works perfect so I'm glad it's back because it says you know everything is right there you, the reality of the death is what I wanted to have here because again like I said a lot of times in these movies people die and horrible things happen and it's like when I'm supposed to care and for him to see his daughter there and the way you know but he still sees her as a little you know this little girl that he always wanted to protect and now he failed you just feel the weight on him and then to intercut it with Lori running the other girl he swore to protect and he failed there too she's off running away from the killer and he's just a mess it's just a much stronger scene when you let it play out longer as usual We shot this on our last night of filming behind the production office because we realized we didn't have any connection to get her out of the woods onto the road. And there was this tiny plot of trees behind where we had our production office. And we just kept running her through the same tiny little area over and over. And this is our one field that we shot earlier in the production that would later be uh, used. Now in the script, it calls for a road that's raised up so that the car can stop and Michael can tip a car down the road. But I never realized how flat Georgia is. It was almost impossible to find a road that had any sort of embankment that a car could fall down. This was the steepest embankment we could find anywhere. And it was, you know, I mean, it was maybe 10 feet. I mean, it works great, but again, it was the only, uh, the only thing we could find. Blasting on the radio is this old uh, DC hardcore band called Void that I used to really like, so it was cool that they let us use their song in the movie. And again, this was another like weird night where things weren't going right, and as usual, but uh, it all worked out good. We uh, had a car that we were supposed to tip, but the car didn't actually match the car that we were using in the movie, so our double car was a different car. And... Uh, so we were kind of screwed. I think you can see some of the differences. In the car that drives up, so drop it up is a four-door, then the other car is a two-door. There's lots of inconsistencies, but I was sort of hoping if people were caught up in the scene, they wouldn't notice all the problems with the cars. Obviously, Tyler didn't actually pick up a car. We had a crane helping, and then we digitally removed the cable that was helping him tip it. And here's our tiny little embankment. We got, like, basically, you know, one roll, boom. <laughs> That's as far as we get it to fall, but I mean, you know, I guess anymore, and Lori's head would have got crushed. I left the horn beeping for so long, which everybody told me was really annoying, because where I live in California, there seems to be an accident a every week on my street corner, and that's always the sound you hear after an accident. Someone's horn always gets jammed on, so I thought, that's why I always associate with accidents. It's very, very annoying, but it's real. And uh, I, th I don't think you could see it because I think I cut out a second before, but the car is going to blow up, and right as it blows up, Chase bursts out laughing. You can s No, wait, I got out just before he laughed. But you could see he... It was very funny. I mean, he was having a blast, but I don't know why he found the explosion so funny. 
Here's the shack that we uh, is built on a sound stage because uh, we got rained out, so we had to run and rebuild the shack indoors. But nobody can tell. Brief scene here with Brad and his deputy. Uh, Brad and uh, Bill here had a really good, you know, um, vibe they had together here, but they didn't have too many scenes, but they, I always liked them together. Brad was particularly strong in all his scenes. He really uh, took the, the role seriously. I think more so than the first time around. You know, once he saw the finished version of the first Halloween, he really understood what we were going for. I think maybe we should try. Yes, sir. People, roll out. Going to Eagle Road. Now we're intercutting with the shack, which obviously Lori is fully believes it. These people she's seeing are alive in front of her and holding her down when clearly they're all in her mind. Repeat after me. I love you, mommy. I love you, mommy. This was something that was written like the day before because there was a whole other thing I had concocted where there wasn't just one young Michael Myers, there was many and, and there was like, they were everywhere. So it was like there was... But then I thought, well, it's just going to be a million little kids everywhere. And it's, so we just came up with the uh, just the one young Michael and, and the I love you, mommy. Now, these are all just lighting effects, obviously. And then we would film this again outside later with an actual helicopter. So when Michael looks up, you know, we think this is just insanity in his mind. And then he looks up and sees a helicopter. Of course, this was terrible for sound at all times, so we uh, had to loop much of this later, especially Sherry's lines because she's speaking so softly that the wind machines and everything were always crushing her dialogue. Here we are back in our free hotel suite we got that we decided to utilize. This is when I could not figure out, how, well, how does Dr. Loomis know what's going on? Because then I realized, well, he just sees it on TV. It's like everybody else. And we just quickly did that that day spontaneously. You know, we just put a green screen on the TV and later dropped in all this action. Miss Strode allegedly shot and killed Myers herself after being abducted on Halloween night. And as if this story couldn't get more twisted, it was revealed earlier today that Miss Strode... Down the corner, you can see the actual fire department putting out our, our exploding car. Now, all this is from the original shoot, but coming up is some, some of the stuff that we shot during reshoots. This was a very freezing cold night. The ground was so cold that your feet would just freeze standing there. It was miserable. You know, everybody's wearing jackets and they're fine, but I felt bad for the girls because Scout and Sherry were freezing to death out there. Sheriff! I know Malcolm did not want Brad to punch him, but he had to. There's an innocent girl in there I might have kept safe. For your greed. And I tried to keep Malcolm and Brad away from each other for the whole movie until here because uh, you know, they had a lot of scenes together in the last movie and I felt like, let's just keep keep, keep the tension and up till the last final moment when they finally meet again to where Bracket can unload on Loomis, his hatred of everything he's done. I wanted to help. There is nothing that you have to say. 
that I want to hear. Sheriff, please. You must trust me. Look, this is pointless. Michael's never going to respond to hostage. And again, this was a pretty elaborate scene to shoot with the helicopters and all these extras and the cars and the and it, we shot it all in one night and in fact it had been so rainy that we had to just guess where we were going to put the cars in advance because we couldn't actually drive onto the field because all the cars were actually stuck in the mud so you know besides crunching our time we were always trying to guess what we might want to be doing just because the weather was killing us every step of the way now when he steps in the shack obviously this is him entering the shack that we shot on stage several weeks earlier with the lighting effects that we then had to match outside now this is the original ending of the movie which is quite different from the theatrical but Usually, what was your gut reaction and what you originally set out to do is the best way to go. You know, people get in, they start second-guessing, things get jerked around, and, you know, you get crazy and you make decisions, but I always like this. I like both endings. I thought both worked, but this one was this one was our movie. This was like the dark journey of Laurie Strode. It, it was not like a slasher movie where everyone has to get killed. So here, you know, we see what's heating up inside the shack. Michael turns towards Loomis, and then we're outside, and we don't know what's going on. It's tense. The cops are waiting. Nobody knows. And there's a big moment coming up that I thought was significant that, again, was lost in the new ending, where Michael explodes through the wall holding Loomis. Michael knows he's going to die, but he wants to just... He takes his mask off, shows his face, and speaks for the first time in 20 years to Loomis and then stabs him and then the police open fire and it just feels more tragic you know our, I always felt sympathy for Michael for Lori for everyone it's just a tragic event and it's just more you know, you don't have to feel bad for Michael Myers, but it, every you're dealing with characters that have no grip on reality, so in some way you do feel bad for them. And then, after he is clearly dead, Laurie comes stumbling out in a state of shock, yet still is possessed by the visions of Deborah Myers because she has now completely gone over into Michael Myers' mind state. And we just sense through the... Now, this is originally what Brad was looking at, so the reactions play more true. He just sees... And there's a great shot here where, as Laurie walks by, Big Michael and Little Michael are lying on the ground. She still sees that the Little Michael is, is dead on the ground. So she sees both versions of her brother dead. And she picks up the knife because she's going to... Even though Loomis is... We don't know if Loomis is dead or not, although we assume he is, she's going to take up the knife which is like the passing of you know the passing of the baton to uh, Lori from Michael but before she can you know act on it a trigger happy cop kills her so in this version of the movie which for me was very final 
you know, Lori is killed. And the only person to survive the movie is Sheriff Brackett, who has failed. You know, his daughter has died, and the other girl he swore to protect, Lori Strode, is dead. And we end on this... This sort of, like, triangle of death on the ground with Michael, Lori, and Loomis. And as we push into um, Lori's face, and I'll... Another significant thing here is the Love Hurts song, which was something was one of the first things I did for the movie. This idea of using this song, which was also in the the first movie. But once we had the new ending, it didn't make sense anymore. But here, it's tragic and it is our movie. And as we push it on Lori's face, we we know she's dying. She's not dead yet, but she's dying. And we push into her face, and her last thoughts are are the zooming down the white hallway as she's dying so it's not really a sanitarium she's been put away to it's just her final thoughts as she dies which is why it's so surreal and again rather than rushing through this this longer version plays out much longer and plays off the song much better and I just thought it was a much more classic tragic ending but sometimes the problem is, you know, when you have a, a movie like Halloween, people are expecting certain things, and when you try to take it in another direction, you know, you really have to change people's perceptions of what they want to see. So just before, you know, it all ends, she has her final vision with the white horse, and then we fade out, and she's died. You know, she's, she's faded away. She's died. You know, Lori is dead. It's not that she's crazy and she's in a mental hospital. She's, everybody's gone. And the song, which we remember from the first movie, really the lyrics now take on a whole new meaning in this really um, depressing way that it's been re, uh, re-recorded. And, you know, it's, it's much more tragic ending rather than just this crazy stab-a-thon. And I think, you know, that's why all these additional scenes really give you a completely different movie. It's a different emotional journey about a character named Laurie Strode. It's not a slasher movie about Michael Myers. And that's what we set out to make, and that's what we made. So that's why I believe this version is much stronger. And that is that. Still ending with the, you know, working, I think it works even better, Rather than playing the John Carpenter music, you have the Love Hurts playing over the death scenes from both movies, and it's even more tragic. And that is the end of that. Thank you. I'm Rob Zombie. Thank you for watching Halloween 2 with me. Goodbye.